0: Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. <music> Indulge me for a moment in a thought experiment. You're a 13-year-old girl. You have a wonderful voice. You love playing guitar, writing songs, and your goal is to be a successful music singer, country, songwriter. That path seems clear enough. Even if it won't be easy, there are no guarantees. Just keep on working on your voice, your instrumental chops, hone the craft of songwriting, and boom, at the very least, you'll get your shot. But what about when labels don't sign you because they've already have a female on their roster? or radio programmers say women don't want to hear women. And the part about honing your songwriting skills, yeah, that's a big piece of the dream. In Nashville, the process often involves two people getting together for a co-write, trying out ideas and writing together. Simple enough, but women often experience harassment, unwanted advances, and belittlement in those informal sessions. LGBTQ writers can feel unsafe showing up as themselves or showing up at all. This can affect their access to opportunities, and it also can affect how women and non-binary folks who work and who they work with. For more on this, I'd like to introduce my first guests. WPLN reporter Paige Flager recently wrote a story about the inappropriate encounters women have come up against during the songwriting process. And joining me, joining her, is songwriter Chris Matthews. Paige and Chris, thank you both for being here.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks so much. So, Paige, tell me, how'd you come across this story?
1: Well, I had been talking with our editors a little bit um, since I moved here, really, about wanting to work on um, sexism and sexual harassment in the music scene here in Nashville. And it was interesting. We kind of had a lot of conversations about, like, who is the white whale in Nashville? Like, who is the Harvey Weinstein in Nashville's mu- music scene? Um mm-hmm. The more I would ask people that question, the more I found that it wasn't really this one big person. It was just all of these little individual interactions that women were experiencing in the industry uh, that were making it really untenable for them to, to be pursuing a career in songwriting.
0: How many women did you interview for this story?
1: All in all, I talked to eight women on the record, um, got emails from a lot more uh, about their experiences, whether that be you know, in the songwriting room, as you were saying, and then also about just their experiences with different genres, country music in particular came up multiple times, um, mm. and just about how these interactions and who you are as a person can impact what the song sounds like.
0: How did they describe some of these really horrible experiences? <clears throat>
1: Yeah, I think it's, I think any woman listening probably has has been in a situation where you had someone asking you a question that you felt really uncomfortable about. People, um, women told me about experiences where men would ask them about their sex lives, about um, their dating history, uh, about their bodies, about their age, um, all of these things that, that they were really not interested in sharing. And I think Oftentimes they told me it was under the guise of being about getting closer so that we could do this intimate thing about Mm. like writing a song together. Like, And women would say, like, this has nothing to do with the song that we're trying to write. This is just you using this situation and oftentimes using your power uh, to put me in an uncomfortable position. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, Chris, you're a songwriter. Yeah. Were you aware of this like type of inappropriate behavior in songwriting sessions? I
2: mean it pretty much goes without saying, where where there are fellas, there is likely to be um, this kind of pervasive issue as well. Mm. Um, and especially in the genres that I most often find myself in, which is country Americana. Um, not as much with folk, thankfully. We try to be a little bit more progressive over in the folk wheel. But by and large, just because so much of the culture of country music has, um, in, a, in a way, kind of these antiquated ideas about... Um, femininity and and masculinity and kind of what those roles look like, what those gender roles look like. And so a lot of times that culture kind of permeates the actual writing of the songs as well. And so I think what so many of my friends are finding is that that is bleeding over into the actual process itself.
0: Now, as you were getting into the industry, did you have friends who kind of told you about this and warned you about harassment?
2: For me, because I'm so new to co-writing, I'm very much kind of a, a, a one-woman army um, prior to moving to Nashville. Um, it hasn't been as much of an issue for me, um, but hearing so many other women's stories and hearing them talk about the interactions that they have um, in these situations, most of the the people that I have written with, um, I've written with other black women. I'm a black woman myself, so writing with other black women, um, writing with uh, one man, one white man who was just lovely to work with, but he is the exception and not the rule. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm hoping that by and large, because of stories like Pages, we can kind of shift that uh, on its head.
0: Now, Paige, is there a connection between the women you spoke with in in how they were approached to be a part of these very problematic writing sessions.
1: Yeah, I think there was a lot of discussion about when you are approached by a male songwriter to do a co-write. There's a, a sort of question of like, is this person, what are their intentions? Are they approaching me because of my skill and because of my talent? Are they approaching me because of how I look are they approaching me because they actually want to go on a date and this is like a way for them to kind of worm their way into it. And Mm. I think that that second guess, um, often comes along with like all of this strategy that women have to do in order to feel comfortable walking into a empty room with a man, um, which is just like, asking your friends if they've heard like this recon, basically like asking your friends if they've heard anything about this guy. Or one woman even told me that oftentimes she invites a third songwriter into the room if she's unfamiliar with the guy. Um, because that's just the only way that she feels comfortable now approaching it.
0: What kind of response have you received since you dropped this piece last week?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of people <laughs> said that the article resonated with them and their experience. So there's actually a, a Facebook group of people, work, m- women working in the music industry here in Nashville that I'm part of. Um, and I posted the article and said thank you, because originally that art, uh, that Facebook page was where I got a lot of the sources for the story. Um and one woman wrote this article, you know, the sexism affects co writing, but it also affects networking, making connections, and so much more. I've been in Nashville for six years and can probably count on one hand the number of times a guy has said, We should write sometime to me, and actually meant it, and that he only wanted to write nothing more. So it's very clear that some of these experiences that the women that I spoke to um, shared. We're we're common for women working in the industry here in Nashville.
0: Chris, how does this resonate with you?
2: Yeah, it's just so so sad and just so indicative, again, of just that larger culture. Um, You know, when we think about how to teach men how to be much better in these situations you know it's like if you have to think really really hard about how to just be in a space and make someone be comfortable in a space with you you're probably part of the problem um, it's just so unfortunate and I'm just so grateful to to Paige for shining a light on this because I know so many women have wanted to voice this and express this um, as a larger uh, cultural issue within the songwriting community and to just be able to give such a voice to that and see truly how pervasive of a problem it is in the culture just like in so many different areas um, of American life where sexual harassment um, and sexism and misogyny are concerned.
0: Paige, one of the songwriters you talked to for your story is Janelle (laughs) Feynman. She moved to Nashville about a decade ago to work on in the country music industry. But when she got here, she says she immediately felt like she didn't fit in. Let's listen to a little bit of what she said.
3: One of the reasons why I think I didn't get into co-writing like a lot of people did was because I immediately felt like, oh, this isn't safe. And I don't want to write. And even then, I don't want to write a song about a tailgate and a beer. And like, even then, this was 12 years ago and we're still there. And so that brings me into like, yeah, the content of songwriting. And and I'm just going to go macro for a minute. When you have a bunch of ceo label people and people at the top who are one kind a white man a white straight cis man um they're in control of all those decisions and so and then when we have a capitalistic market intersecting with art and we have an entire um genre of music that has Profited off of one type of song, they're going to keep pushing that and pushing that until that no longer makes money.
0: Okay, so it's a couple of things packed in <laughs> yeah. here. So much good stuff. Go up, to okay, Go we're we're, we're going to start with the first one. <laughs> yeah. She said she didn't feel safe. <laughs> mm-hmm. Why was that?
1: Because of all of the things we were just talking about, she didn't want to go into that co-writing room. Uh, she had heard stories as soon as she moved here, as like a young woman. Um, she had, yeah, she had heard enough um, to know that that was not a situation that she wanted to put herself in. Not only as a young woman, but also as a young lesbian woman. She she knew that she she did not feel welcomed, and she did not feel like she belonged.
0: Chris, do you feel like there are certain rooms that you wouldn't be welcomed in?
2: Yeah, it's so interesting, We, uh, I am also a lesbian, and so for me, I, I kind of make this joke on stage all the time when, and when I'm playing in country spaces, that's like, who better to write a song about a hot girl than a lesbian? I truly have mm-hmm. the inside track. And so, yet, ironically, we don't see uh, labels or other uh, men who are songwriters kind of thinking that same way and being like, oh yeah, that's a good point, let's tap into that natural resource right there. Um, and so it's interesting. I don't really. I always write songs about loving the people I love and the way that I love, and find the the commonalities in those themes. Uh, the same way that LGBTQ kids have always kind of been made to ref, to see themselves reflected in like the songs that the dude bros are writing about love and the hot girl. You know, we're able to make that transition in one direction, but not in the other. And so, you know, for me as a as a songwriter, I try to always write as authentically as I can and kind of push the envelope. And so I'm hoping that as I'm in Nashville, more and more um, people in the songwriting community here, uh, everybody really, but men especially, can kind of understand the idea of that and be open and, and curious about that process. Because when you're singing songs to the audience, you know, they're they're just relating to the lyrics, just like music always is about relating to the lyrics. And so I hope that songwriters will start to, to not be so afraid of jumping into a co-write with somebody who is LGBTQ and, and writing a love song because, as we say, love is love. So
0: Speaking about being brave and co-writes, yeah. you're new here in yeah. town. How have you been approaching co-writes?
2: It's been really cool. So far, um, I've written a few so far, um, almost all with women and Which there's no surprise as to why. (laughs) Expert, right? You know, that's not a closed gate, guys. If you're a good guy, you know, and you want to write, that's fine. But yeah, it's been amazing so far for me because songwriting is such an intimate uh, process Folks that I actually have connection with, folks that I actually consider to be um, friends, it just is such an effortless process writing with folks that I feel so connected to just because the process of songwriting is such an intimate thing. Um, but I'm hoping that as, as I'm in Nashville more and more, I'll get, get to experience kind of the idea of, of writing with strangers and trying to find that commonality with strangers and weaving those beautiful stories together.
0: Now, Paige, you mentioned this before, like women are approached by a guy. Hey, mm-hmm. I want to write with you. So they start asking their friends about him, almost yeah. like this whisper network. Yeah. What what other it's kind of like for protection and intelligence, uh-huh. on the potential enemy. What other types of actions are women taking to protect themselves?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that. All in all, I've heard from a lot of people, like Chris just said, who just won't write with men anymore. Mm. Um, I, I, There were people on that Facebook page when we posted the article who said, like, you know, I 95% of the time I write only with other women. And, like, this article continues to affirm, <laughs> affirm my decision to do that. So I think— uh, at the end of the day, these stories were not hard to find. They're, they're really pervasive. And um, I think the question has to be less about like what women are doing uh, and more about what men are doing and what people who are in charge of labels are accepting from male songwriters when these behaviors are, are pervasive.
0: You know, this kind of reminds me of when I lived in Los Angeles making hip hop music. I would get into production sessions and Mm -hmm. a lot of times, most of the time, women would say, we're really comfortable working with you, Khalil, because you just want to make the music. Yeah. And I just found that in all forms of the, the genre that is kind of, unfortunately, the M.O. come to the studio so they can then make these unwanted advances. But I want to skip to you, Chris. What would you like to see done about this entire situation?
2: I mean, as Paige said, it, it's so important for men to hold other men accountable. Um, when you are in this songwriting community, I hope that men will understand that they have a responsibility to make these spaces safe for everybody, for women um, and for all songwriters. And so when they hear of their peers, you know, kind of coming back and telling this story about, hey, man, you won't believe what I just did, to, to not accept that, to speak out, to speak up and and take that to take that person to, to task and tell them that that's that's not okay. Um it's so much about accountability, it always is. When people think that this kind of culture, that this kind of behavior is okay, that is inadvertently giving license for it to continue. Mm-hmm. And so men have to hold other men accountable. Um, you know, if, if women, if we have to start doing our own version of, of the blacklist and make a pink list with all these people's names named so that women know you know, who, who are, are the big, big uh, problem makers, we'll do that as well, but so much of the onus isn't on women to do that labor, it's on men to hold other men accountable and to set the tone for what this culture should Actually,
0: be like. It's kind of been interesting to me how the Me Too movement has kind of skipped over the music industry. Where mm. I think hopefully, Paige Flager, your next report, <laughs> we can get into that. You know. I wanted to say thanks to Chris Matthews, singer songwriter, and WPLN reporter Paige Flager. Thank you both for being here. Thanks, thanks so much. You can check out Paige's story on sexism and harassment in the songwriting room at WPLN.org. We're taking a short break. When we come back, author Marissa R. Moss joins us to talk about her new book, Her Country, how the women in country music became the success they were never supposed to be, and have you faced sexism in the music industry. Tweet us your comments at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Right now, country music is a genre dominated by straight, cisgender white men. When writer Jody Ronson, Rosen, coined the term bro country, he was talking about all the songs about pickup trucks, partying hard, and a particular stereotype of women, suggesting they smile and nod and slide across the seat on command. These artists and songs currently top the charts, but it wasn't always this way. 20 years ago, women were holding their own on the country music charts, and sometimes they were even in control of them. What changed, and what are women doing about it? My next guest has some answers in her new book, Her Country, how the women of country music became the success they were never supposed to be. Marissa R. Moss, welcome to This is Nashville.
4: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Pleasure to have you with us. I'm excited to talk with you. You know, so you're a journalist who's been covering country music for quite some time. You, you wrote a big story for Rolling Stone Country about the harassment women faced in the radio world. How did the idea for this book come together?
4: Um, well, I came to Nashville a little over 10 years ago, and uh, I loved, you know, kind of Left of center, alt country, I guess you could call it Americana. But I also loved what was on Music Row, including women, obviously. Um, And I always felt a little like I didn't kind of fit in either side a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And as I reported and kept kind of uh, making my way into the country music scene, I guess, um, I really noticed kind of a lack of anyone but exactly what you said, cis, white, men, on country radio, but it wasn't what I was loving um, so I kind of naturally gravitated that way I guess, you know, as my beat and uh, and I, it didn't always like immediately occur to me to even write a book because you don't see as many women's stories written as country music books you see Willie Nelson, Merle Haggard and Waylon Jennings books and you're like well, you know, there are no women's stories there um, but ultimately I decided I wanted to change that
0: I'm glad you did. <laughs> Thanks. So the the book's dedication reads, for anyone who needs to be reminded, it's your country music too. So tell me, were you finding that more and more women were losing their love and enthusiasm for country music?
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's one of like, it's such a big tragedy for me to see people who grew up loving country music that are not men, that are not white, um, that are not straight, Thinking that there was not a place for them in country music or loving it. And I, I've heard this so many times, people that grew up loving country music and then they realized that it was going to be a difficult world for them or they experienced harassment or sexism or racism or saw it on TV even mm. um, and said, no, this isn't for me. Country music is not for me anymore. Um, And if the book can help do one thing, it's welcome those people back in the space or make them feel like they can be a part of it, even if they, you know, never had tried before. Um, So that's kind of what I wanted to, you know, sum up in that that epigraph.
0: I'm wondering, like, what is the genre missing because of this, like, restricted, restrictive viewpoint that they've taken?
4: So much. I mean, so much. And it's it's so cliche because everyone says it all the time, but country music is three chords and the truth. Mm-hmm. And like, if we want the full truth of humanity and the human experience, you need to bring everybody into it. And I mean, in this music that, you know, the bro country that you were talking about, it's some of it's really fun and I don't want to hate on all of it. I, I like some of it, but it, that's not the truth of everyone. And, and country music has become this like, you know, Instagram filtered version of itself where it's just, you know, partying and, and cute romances and that's not the truth that we're supposed to be Singing about and, mm-hmm. and being fed and it's missing so much
0: your book begins with 1999 so take us back. What's the context?
4: Yeah, um, I started in 1999 because you could turn on the radio and you could hear women you could hear Shania Twain you could hear the chicks I mean, you could hear the chicks on country radio. Mm-hmm. That's wild now. <laughs> um, and, you know, Trisha Yearwood and Reba McIntyre and, uh, and and those women and those songs, you know, Martina McBride's Independence Day songs that really had a message even from women were on the charts. And uh, and we hit 9-11 and we hit the incident with the chicks on country radio. We hit. Um, the Telecommunications Act of 1996 to get a little wonky, which really led to a consolidation of of, um, of radio stations across the country. And these women just start disappearing from the radio, disappearing. And by the time you get to, you know, 2004, 2005, you're down to maybe one or two a year. And for a while, we had no women, you know, hitting number one, you know, for uh, months on end Mm. Um, and we're still there to be honest it's gotten like slightly better but i don't want to really focus on the crumbs (laughs) um so yeah i picked that kind of entry point to show just that really drastic slope down so you mentioned Mm
0: 9-11 how did 9-11 change country music
4: it changed it a lot um so you had these big ballads from reba and trisha and faith and and great Passover crop Uh, pop crossover songs from Shania and you hit 9-11 and suddenly country music goes into jingoistic mode. So it's, you know, Toby Keith singing about putting a boot in a terrorist ass and it's Alan Jackson singing, you know, a song that that people love, but it does, you know, he says that I can't tell the difference between Iraq and Iran. And like, we still are cool with that. (laughs) Um, And, it was just kind of this constant peddling of these really sort of pro American nationalistic songs that pushed women's voices out along with it and a lot of other voices. And we still sort of kept that kind of um, that kind of gross interpretation of that American Patriot. And I think it's been mirrored a lot in the way our politics have evolved too.
0: Yeah. As I was saying earlier, I lived in Los Angeles making hip hop music. You didn't see Los Angeles, Sunset Boulevard, it's the land of billboards and posters. You didn't see many country music artists, but after 9-11, all over the place, we saw them continuing. You know, our country goes to war in Iraq and Afghanistan under the Bush administration. The Chicks, known back then as the Dixie Chicks, were on top of the music world. Talk to us about what happened next with them.
4: Yeah, whenever I I think back to the story, I... It feels like a movie because it's it's just so wild that it actually happened. But the Chicks, um, known then, like you said, as the Dixie Chicks, were the biggest thing in country music. They were huge. Um, And they were not just huge in country music. They were huge across. You know, they were showing up at Lilith Fair. They were winning Grammys. They were everywhere. And Natalie Maines, the lead singer of the Chicks, they were on stage at a concert right before uh, on the eve of war and said... You know, kind of a small comment that she didn't, um, you know, she didn't think that uh, she was proud that George W. Bush was from Texas, where they're from, and we don't support this war. I'm kind of paraphrasing it, um, and that was it. And then once word got back to the states and kind of the early stage chat rooms, like conservative chat rooms, got a hold of it. They were organizing um, these protests where they were smashing their records and they dropped off country radio, like just plummeted and disappeared. And that was it. Everyone was okay with just completely letting them go just because of that one small comment. Um, and it, it, country music never recovered, I don't think.
0: Well, if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil lake I'm talking with author Marissa Armas about her new book, Her Country. So, you know, they pulled from the radio... And the chicks were basically gone. The industry had this incredible amount of control over radio. What gave them that power?
4: I mean, in country music, country radio, and I think it's still hard for um, people to understand that are a little bit outside of country music because there's so many other ways to access our music now. But in country music, country radio is it. It is the number one predictor of market share and success. And it's a really kind of um, incestuous relationship that radio has with the labels and back and forth. And so labels can even help uh elevate an artist on country radio sort of behind the scenes by wheeling and dealing and trading and payola. Hey, yeah, mm-hmm. and it, that's still happening now it's just not money. Maybe it's concert tickets, maybe it's Super Bowl tickets, mm-hmm. maybe it's uh you know, I'll do this for you and you do this for me and it's all to elevate mostly straight white men to the top of the charts. Which is why sometimes you'll see a number one song from a man in country music and you'll have no idea who they are. Like, Uh (laughs) I'll see that. They'll be like, who? Wait, I work in country music and I report on it, but I I barely even know who that guy is. Um, Meanwhile, Casey Musgraves is selling out Bridgestone Arena, you know, and she's not getting played on country radio. Mickey Guyton is singing at the freaking Super Bowl, and, you know, she's not having that number one song, but like Luke. Uh, I'm trying to make up a name, you know, <laughs> like, Luke Taylor Luke is having a number one. And, you know, yeah. and uh, it's because it's not all, you know, this organic, we magically just love to hear those, you know, interesting songs about trucks. It's that because there's this kind of more sinister thing going on a lot of the time.
0: Getting canceled certainly can put a damper on what has been a successful, a very successful career. Let's hear a little bit of a song they released about six years after the said incident.
3: I've paid a price.
0: So not exactly chastened, right? I mean, Marissa, how how have the chicks responded in exile?
4: I get lost in that song. <laughs> I mean, I could just... It, they responded by saying, we're not going to apologize. I mean, that is an amazing thing is that they could have had that redemption road. They could have, if they did exactly what everyone wanted them to do, which is apologize, say, I take it back. Sorry, we didn't mean it. Like... You know, I had too many beers and, a uh, you know, yay America, yay Bush, like, yay war. Um, and then make a sort of straight ahead country album that, you know, they could have they could have come back. I firmly believe that. And instead they said, no, thank you. We're not apologizing. Um, and they built this path for women and people in country music to show that you don't have to. You don't have to take that path of sacrificing your yourself and your morality and your beliefs. Um, and they, they did pay a price, you know, financially. They, they were on top of the world and they've built a whole new ecosystem since then. But, I mean, I think I hear that song and I get goosebumps because to me it's so inspiring. Like, to say at that moment when, you know, you're at that crossroads and you can go one way, I mean... What what could feel more important even in the world that we live in right now? You know, you could chase the easy or you could chase, you know, what's morally right. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think all the women that I write about in this book, you know, they didn't take the easy road.
0: You wrote about these three women. These you focused on Mickey Guyton, Marin Morris, and Casey Musgraves. Why those three?
4: Um <laughs> Well, I love their music, so that (laughs) that helps. But uh, they're all three from Texas, and they've all, you know, they all came to Nashville around the same time. I think it's really important for people to be reminded that Mickey Guyton was right there alongside when Marin and Casey was in town. Um, You know, she didn't just show up in Nashville two two years ago. She's been here for a decade, Um, and started out in Texas around the same time as them. And they all had really unique paths, you know, Casey came up singing in a, you know, a traditional country duo and came to Nashville and said, I don't really care if radio's not going to play me. Maren Morris came up playing in bars behind, you know, 40, 50 year old white dudes, you know, like just little Marin, you know, playing at honky tonks and, and uh, dance halls and, and came to Texas, uh, came to Nashville as a songwriter and decided to go the artist route and now can be on country radio one minute and then out protesting, you know, Black Lives Matter protests the next day and speaking her mind and also showing up at the Americana Awards. And I think that's incredible. And Mickey, like I said, has, you know, had the same journey. And I felt like it was really important to show that she had been there in Texas, too. You know, same kind of same kind of place as, as Marin and Casey and came to Nashville 10 years ago and the doors had just been slammed, slammed, slammed or not even opened you know maybe not even slammed because they never opened to begin with and is so good such an incredible singer, uh, incredible writer incredible artist the whole package and probably more you know sort of quote country than Casey or Marin in what her music sounds like um, so I thought it was a really strong group to, you know, not only just women that I had to love because I'm spending so much of my life with these people, I had to really love what they stood for. Um, but also just kind of a mixture to show everything that I wanted to talk about in a um, I think a really intersectional way about country music.
0: So you mentioned Mickey Guyton from Texas, someone you truly, truly admire. Let's listen to a bit of her song, Better Than You Left Me.
5: On the side where you lose Ain't it funny
0: really like that that feels good I have some friends who are some hardcore country fans I know they would love this song it's super country it's right in the wheelhouse this had to have been a big hit right
4: no I I you play that song and I feel my blood boil because it she sounds so country in that song she mm-hmm. has this beautiful twang in her voice it's it's pop country and it didn't crack 43. I think it was not a hit. It was not even close to a hit. And that was 2015. Wow. Or I think I she sang that at a um, a country radio seminar event, an industry event here in Nashville in like, what was it, 2013? I mean, and that song, just like you said, it sounds like just in the wheelhouse, and it is. And, and I remember when that song came out, um, I had read some... You know, people writing about the song and saying, oh, it it melds this perfect point between, you know, R&B and hip hop and country. And I was just like, what on earth are you talking about? I'm like, huh? It is a
0: country song. Straight up and down. But
4: like, cool that you're willing to put that you know, just show us who you are right there on that table.
0: (laughs) See, that's kind of ridiculous. I have, I I question sometimes when I see uh, music writers write about music. I mean, did they say R&B and hip hop because she's African American? Yes. Oh Lord.
4: But that's the only explanation because you listen to that song. Sorry, I'm getting very fired up now, but you listen to it and it's a country song. Mm -hmm. She sounds, I mean, you can hear that twang, a beautiful twang coming through and, it is not. It's, it's just a ma- It's a mainstream country song that you could play between Carrie Underwood and Luke Bryan and, you know, Carly Pierce and, uh, you know, Dustin Lynch, whoever. Like, that would fit in perfect. And those, you know, people showed their rear ends very quickly in how they were going to talk about Mickey because, you know, there's only one reason that you're saying yeah. those things.
0: hmm We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Marissa R. Moss about her new book, Her Country. And we'll hear from singer-songwriter Leah Turner. Have you experienced sexism or other discrimination in the country music business? Tweet us at ThisIsNashville. We'll be right back. Leo Lake Colonna, and this is Nashville. I've been talking with Marissa R. Moss about her country, how women of country music became the success they were never supposed to be. I'd like to introduce my next guest, singer-songwriter Leah Turner. Leah, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So tell me, what's your experience been like as a woman trying to break into this industry?
5: Yeah, it's... um. Definitely everything that Marissa is saying, um, there is such a disconnect and such a hard road just to be in the music business, but then to be a woman in the music business. I got signed to Sony and um, was only signed eight months. And in that eight months, I had a top 40 single. I toured with Brad Paisley and Jay Owen and Rascal Flats. was the only female on all of these tours, including... From the crew to the band to the I mean, I was the only girl. Wow, which can be very uncomfortable because none of your people are there. You know, you're 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 there by yourself. Um, and I got dropped while I was on the Brad Paisley tour, and I still had to walk out there in front of all of those people and act like I had it together. But my dream had just been—it makes me want to cry—ripped out from underneath me, um, and. There was a couple of other people that got dropped, men, and they all, within, I would say, six to eight months, had a new record deal. Um, and I still do not.
0: What was their reasoning for dropping
5: you? Well, what they said was um, because the president was getting switched over. But then, you know, you hear rumblings, and um, it was because I was difficult.
0: Difficult. Okay. I want to get into that a little bit. Mm-hmm. um what what situations really occurred that that gave you this label difficult It mm-hmm. kind of feels like what they did with the chicks
5: mm-hmm. um well, I know who I am mm-hmm. and I stand up for myself. um, and when you're surrounded by nothing but men, they do not like to swallow a strong woman. um and it's, for instance, I had a um uh, single art that came out and I was signing it at a meet and greet and I looked down and I went, why are, why are my eyes brown? And so I talked to my record rep and said, you guys got my eye color completely wrong and printed it and I'm standing here signing. Well, he went back and said that I was complaining about the single art and that they can't do anything to please me. Hmm. And I remember I got brought in and had to sit down. And um, they said, you know, Leah, I mean, teams have put this together and worked hard to get this. I mean, you picked this out, you know, and I did the clothes and all of that stuff alongside with the stylus. And I looked at him and I said, you guys printed it with brown eyes. I have blue eyes. And you expect me to listen to you tell me what I'm supposed to do with my career. Mm -hmm. when You can't even get my eye color right. Mm
0: Mm-hmm standing up for yourself is something very rare a lot of artists are afraid to do that unless you have strong representation you know what what really i mean obviously you told us a little bit about how you when how you were raised what motivated you to really stand up for yourself in the face of these people who were dangling being signed on a music label yeah. above your head?
5: Um, well, I just know that if you don't stand for something and it comes from my upbringing, you will fall for everything, you know? Um, and when you go in there, um, they signed me because they I knew who I was. I had my first EP already written. Um, I had, you know, I fought for the producer uh, to come with me. They wanted to put me with everyone else and I fought for him. So everything that, They signed me for is was exactly what I was doing, you Uh know, and somebody um, in the in the label at the label. I remember her saying this and she said, you know, you guys signed her because she was a bad A. You know, she knew who she was and now you're mad at her for it. Uh You can't do that, you know, because now you're trying to change everything. Why I'm even in this office. Why my pictures on the wall? Why I'm on the tour? You know, and um, it just, it was, it got my butt dropped. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> your heritage, your, you're white and Mexican-American. Yes. Did, outside of this change in hair, in eye color and potentially mm-hmm. like trying to, what they call an attitude adjustment, mm-hmm. did they try to manipulate you in any other ways?
5: Well, yes. I mean, um, it was, and, and I say this. Because I don't think that they were telling me, let's focus on the cowgirl side. Let's not focus on the Mexican side. Um, I don't think that they were doing that because they were, per se, not wanting me to be Mexican. But they were, in a sense, trying to protect me from what's out there. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is... um, it's, it's not an easy road um, and so now I'm being able to embrace that side of me and really educate that a lot of the American cowboy traditions come from the vaqueros which were the first cowboys and those two cultures really mirror each other um, and they've been dancing for a very long time and for me to be able to marry them is an honor and exciting for me so um, they said no and I said
0: yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this kind of sounds familiar. If, if you, uh, I'm an audiophile. I collect a lot of vinyl, so I'll pick up albums and I'll see. Obviously, I know this is a, an African-American singer, an album from 1945, but it's either a white woman on the cover mm-hmm. or just a, a lovely landscape, no close picture of who the person actually is. And author Marissa Armas is. You, you're still with us. Marissa, how much control do labels really assert over women's public images and persona
4: I think I mean this is really fascinating and enraging to listen to your story Leah Um, but yeah I think there's a very narrow view of what labels want out of the women that they sign a very very narrow view you know it comes back to the only there's only like one slot for women per label basically that's sort of like the industry no one will probably admit that to you in public but you know it's sort of industry known that there's like you know one or two slots for women at labels and then within that slot it's pretty much a white woman with blonde hair and um maybe a christian white woman with blonde hair if we're gonna get real specific about it Mm. um and that's you know the narrow view of what a woman is supposed to be and how she's supposed to perform. And um, and the women that I write about in this book, um, Leah included, and Mickey and Marin, and and Casey and Miranda have all pushed those limits in their own ways. And you know. It's really interesting, too, because I think when we offer these options to women, it's like, okay, you can be this one very feminine sort of Carrie, not to knock on Carrie Underwood at all. She's fabulous. But, you know, you can look like this. You can be the Carrie Underwood or you can be this sort of Gretchen Wilson, um, you know, sort of like trying to be like what we think maybe like a boy version of uh, a girl country singer could be, you know, getting dirty and driving the truck and shooting guns. And like, you can't be anything in between those two. Mm. I will, but you still have to be straight. Okay. Mm. Um, so don't forget that. And you, but yeah, but you can't be anything in that range and you can't be, you know, you have to be so in the box. Like if, un, if one moment you're the Gretchen Wilson type and then you decide to put on a dress and like be super feminine, well, you can't do that. Um, and you have to stay in this very narrow lane, and that's what I really you know, love and admire about the the women that I chose to write about, is that they've pushed all of those boundaries in so many different ways.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliola Colonna. We're talking this hour with author Marissa R. Moss and country singer Leah Turner. Now, Leah, you are very close with singer Mickey Guyton. Yes. How did you two become such good
5: friends? So I was doing... I was the new girl in town. Mickey had been here about two years before me. And she came to a writer's round. And she, the way she tells it, it's funny. And she was like, here comes this blonde hair, blue-eyed girl with this... And my hair was like down to here and, may, you know, whatever. And she goes, and then she gets up there and she can sing. <laughs> <laughs> and so I came over and, blah, 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 you know, talking, whatever. And we just, from that day on have been, I mean, we lived together for the last five and a half years. Okay. So um, we have just been seeing it come through all the struggles. Um, I mean, I was on the Brad Paisley tour, and Mickey called and was like, and she was going after me. And she was like, do I bring my dog? Like, what's it like being on the road? This and this and that, you know, because we had never had any of those opportunities before, you know. Um, And so to see two females that only have one slot, and living together, um, it just shows a testament of if you link arms with women and support one another, there's nothing that you cannot do.
0: I wanna ask you about that, because we only have these very few slots in, but we have a lot of women who are searching and and looking, trying to fight for these slots. Does that make it difficult to find camaraderie and solidarity within female and women women artists, singers, songwriters? Yes. (laughs)
5: Yeah. Yes, it does. Um, it's hard because we're in a sense pinned against one another, um, and it's like if I help her, then I might not get my shot if she gets it. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't be like that, but it's a survival tactic, you know. Because you're here fighting, and you're making sacrifices of moving away from you know family. You're making sacrifices of not maybe possibly having a family um, because it takes so long to get to your place, you know, Um, that it is, it's fighting for it. And so I think it makes it hard for us to really link arms when we need one another. And there is room for all of us, black, Mexican, white, Asian, you know, homosexual, whatever it is, there's room for everyone.
0: Yeah, I thought hip-hop was the only uh, genre yeah. where they had beefs and people fighting for the top <laughs> slot. I, I didn't know. Now I do.
5: We just say, bless your heart.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Instead of blasting yeah. someone. All right. I digress. I digress. You know... um Marissa, what is the state of the industry now? Is it token artists, they give a representation of, a presentation of a representation, but artists are kind of held to a strong behavioral standard that males don't face, sort of kind of like this Stepford singer paradigm, in a sense. Um, What's the state? Where are we looking at?
4: (sighs) Wow. Um, (laughs) The big audible sigh. I mean, I go back and forth between feeling so optimistic about country music and so excited. Uh, y- you look at Mickey, you look at this organization of, called the Black Opry, which is a, a touring coalition of Black country artists. You look at Leah, you know, singing her truth and speaking to a whole audience that has not been represented even though you know country music loves to sing about tequila and and Mexican vacations and um, you see so many different points of view and you see mickey obviously on the super bowl and um, you see all those things and it's really exciting and then at the same time um, you see a very dark side of country music that is not changing and that is and that is looking at what's happening in the world and what these artists are saying and and just and and stay in the same path exactly, um, and it's uh, and I don't think country radio is budging. I, I don't, and uh, I used to have a little more hope, and you know I really wanted to push it, and, and now I don't know, and and it's it feels like two roads that have just diverging, and and I don't know where it's going, but it's it, it's hope and despair, hope and despair back and forth on the seesaw a lot.
0: <laughs> we got a comment from Miss Mayburn. And this, here we go. As one of the few openly trans women in country, I know how important these convos are. And what y'all said about 13-year-old girls wanting to build lives in music is something I think about all the time. We need to make space... And a place for their futures. Leah, what's your reaction to that? Go about 30 seconds.
5: Yeah, my reaction to that is um, there is a place, and that's why I am grateful to be able to be representing the Mexicano culture in country music, to let people that doesn't necessarily, they don't see themselves in country music, um, that there is a place, and that can be transgender. As we were saying, that can be, you know, somebody that, isn't like gretchen wilson it can be mexicanos latinos puerto ricans whatever country music is three chords and the truth and we everybody has a truth
0: that is singer songwriter leah turner she was joined with author Marissa r moss author of her country how the women in music became the success they were never supposed to be really appreciated having you on and having this conversation thank you both
4: thank you so much thank you very much
0: We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Ana Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are L'Orange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.